So I, I had the privilege and, and the good fortune of being able to spend quite a bit of time over the past couple of weeks with my best friend from high school. And every time Paul and I get together, there are certain stories from our past, from our time together, that we always end up telling each other. And, you know, most of those stories are probably not 100% appropriate to tell from the pulpit, honestly. But um, there are a few that are. I remember when we were in high school, we went to this Christian school, and we had chapel every single Tuesday, right? And there were these guys that were traveling evangelists that would come and speak in our chapel services. And there were some that became really popular and came quite a bit. So, like, the most popular guy's name was Jeremy. And so Jeremy gets in there one week, and um, he starts preaching to us. And I remember it was about, he got the, the, like, the climax of the sermon was this illustration about this guy that he knew that all he ever wanted in his whole life was a Ferrari. So he saved up for this Ferrari, and he scrimped, and he he put this money away and he didn't go out because all he wanted was a Ferrari and he finally saved up enough Ferrari, enough money for the Ferrari. He goes out and he buys it and he comes home and he throws his keys on the car. And you know what he said? I'm not happy. Okay, so there, this is the climax of this story and everybody's like, yes, the Ferrari can't make you happy. But you know, he's a traveling evangelist. He, these guys don't have like a bunch of sermons. They have two or three sermons that they go travel around and they share. Well, the very next week, his buddy Adrian showed up. And doggone it if he didn't preach the exact same sermon. Exact same sermon. So he gets the climax. I mean, he's into it. And he's going... And this guy comes home from the Ferrari dealership and he throws his keys on the bed. And do you know what he said? And at that moment, every person in my high school, every student from every clique, every teacher, faculty, and staff, at the same moment, in the same tone, we all said, I'm not happy. And this guy goes, Jeremy was here last week, wasn't he? And we all said, yes. My school has never been more united before or since than we were when we all said, I'm not happy then. And this guy just said, all right, y'all can go back to class. He didn't even bother to finish preaching the sermon. And so um, that's just every time Paul and I get together, we, we tell the story to each other and it never fails to make us laugh. And it's interesting how old friends do this kind of thing, right? Because it's not like we're telling the story because one of us has forgotten. We both know that it happened. We both know all the details. It's this practiced thing by now. And yet, we relish reliving that moment pretty much every time we're together because it was so funny. And so, when I was thinking about what I wanted to preach to you for the last sermon series together as your pastor. I decided I wanted to preach a series about the gospel. Why preach a series about the gospel, though? Because doesn't that seem like preaching to the choir? 
A lot of times we think about the gospel as the thing that we tell people who don't believe to get them to believe, right? The gospel's what you get told so that you become a Christian. Once you're a Christian, you pretty much already know about the gospel, right? Shouldn't we move on to deeper stuff? We know the story. Jesus was born. He died. He rose again for our sins. That's it. But I believe, like old friends rehashing old stories, preaching about the gospel, even though we already know what happened, has some tremendous power. We get to relive and rehearse together this thing that we have in common with each other. We get to learn more about the central story, the very thing that makes us Christian, and we get to be formed to be more Christ-like each time we go back to the story together. And so for my money, there's no better summary in all of Scripture of the message of the gospel than in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I mean, yeah, you've got the gospels, but they're long. This is a summary of the gospel message. And it's a pretty long chapter. And so for the next few weeks, for the next month or so, I want us to go through 1 Corinthians 15 together. We're going to take it slow. We're going to celebrate this new good news together remembering what unites us as Christians. And we might end up finding that the gospel has a more meaning than we ever realize. So we're going to get kicked off today with 1 Corinthians chapter, first, chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received in which also you stand, through which you also are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message I proclaim to you, unless you've become to believe it in vain. For what I handed on to you was of first importance that I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as, one, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me has not been in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have come to believe. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So one of the first things that Paul wants us to know he wants us to internalize in this 1 Corinthians 15 text is that the gospel is true. Right? He goes through this litany, this list of so many witnesses. Now, back then, there was no doubt that the crucifixion happened. That was a matter of public record. 
right? They knew that Jesus was a real person and that he really died, and it was kind of a big deal around Jerusalem at the time. So it wasn't so much the crucifixion that he needed to verify. It was the resurrection, right? You tell me that a guy raised from the dead, I'm going to want some receipts. But Paul's over here providing the receipts. He's like, you want receipts? Let's talk about all the people that saw Jesus after he was crucified. This thing we all remember, that he appeared to Cephas, who's Peter. He appeared to the twelve. He appeared to 500 brothers and sisters at one time. And at the time of this writing, you can go check because those folks are still kicking around somewhere. (laughs) It says they're still alive. A few of them have died. But if you want verification, go ask one of these 500 folks. I'm not scared of it. This is not some hidden secret. Like, I'll, I'll tell you who to go ask. And he appeared to James and the apostles. And then he appeared to me. So Paul knows that he's not, he's not scared. He, he, is, he is showing that this gospel is true. That this story that we tell each other isn't just this nice story. Isn't some, some moral parable that helps us live better lives. Really lived. He really died on the cross for our sins, and he really rose again. He has power over death. And if you want to know, just go chat it up with one of those 500 or so people that saw him. Paul's providing receipts that the gospel is true. The gospel is real. It really happened. It's a matter of historical record. It's not a made-up story. It's not a fairy tale. And because the gospel is true, he goes on to share that it has real consequences for us. This true gospel that really happened matters us because if god the creator of everything cared about you enough to come and die for your sins then that ought to matter to us and he says christ's death was for our sins now there's a lot of argument about how christ's death was for our sins and this is, there's this whole like discipline around this called atonement. I'm not going to bore you with a bunch of talk about atonement theory. All of this to say that there are different ideas about how Christ's death accomplished what it did for our sins. Right? Some, there's some people that believe in the penal substitution theory in that it's like we were going to death row and Jesus went and took our place on death row. That's what, a lot of you, what we hear a lot of times. That's the, the substitution. We were receiving a punishment, and then Jesus received that punishment in our place so that we could go free. There's some people who believe in what's called Christus Victor, and that somehow by dying on the cross, Jesus received, uh, uh, achieved an ultimate victory over sin, and that the cross is more of a, of a victory that Jesus is having so that all the rest of creation could participate in his victory. And I'm here to tell you that we do not need to argue about how it happened. The way I see it is that 
different word pictures show us different facets of Christ's atonement for us. But it doesn't mean that because one of them's true, the other ones are false. We can view different areas of this. Hey, Ruth, what the heck are you doing? Okay. Sorry. <laughs> we can see these different facets of atonement and have them all be true at the same time. They don't have to work against each other. They're both describing something that's bigger than both of them. Thank you. So the end result of this, right? The gospel is true. It really happened. It has consequences for us in that no matter how it was accomplished, Christ took care of sin on the cross and won a victory over sin through the resurrection. And that matters to you and to me. It has consequences in how we go about our lives. And the end result of those consequences, and this is where I want us to camp out a bit, the end result of those consequences is that we can receive grace to live a transformed life. The gospel results in a transformed life. And this transformation isn't just you becoming slightly more moral over time. It's not a gospel of sin management. It's a gospel of transformation, of new life, of you becoming a new person. And that's what Paul says. He says, he was transformed by this as one lowly born. Now, we don't know what that means exactly. There's a lot of speculation of what Paul's talking about. But one way or another, he was unfit to be called an apostle because he persecuted the church of God. Remember that Paul was a murderer. He was going out finding Christians and murdering them. As one untimely born, he appeared to me. But he met Jesus, and Jesus transformed him from a persecutor of the church to an apostle of the church, to the author of a large swath of the New Testament scripture that we have. His life was transformed by Jesus. The fact that the gospel was real and that it mattered to Formed him forever. You can go back and see when he went from Saul to Paul. You can go back and see the before and the after of the effect, the end result that the gospel had on him. Because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me has not been in vain. We ought to have received a transformation. We ought to have experienced a difference as a result of the gospel, as a result of hearing and believing in the gospel. We ought to be a different person today than we were before because of the gospel in our lives. Can, can we truly say that it's because of the grace of God that we are who we are? 
Is God's grace so foundational to your identity as it was to Paul that said, if it was not for the grace of God, I would not even be me. I would be someone else. Worse. That's Paul's testimony. That the gospel was true. That it had a consequence of, of dealing with sin and that, that the end result of that sin was a transformation that was so core to his identity that he cannot even claim to be the same person afterwards. What we'll learn in the rest of this series that the gospel is about more than just your personal salvation, but it is about your personal salvation too. It is about Jesus going to the cross for you so that you can be transformed and you can have eternal life. The gospel is about more than personal salvation, but it's not less than personal salvation. It's a very important part. So today, I just want us to take a moment and reflect as we're invited to come to the altar and share communion. Have you been transformed by the gospel? Have you accepted Christ as your personal Savior? Is the gospel so core to your identity that you are a different person than you would be without it? And if not, there is no better time than today to accept this good news to hear this real truth and to respond in acceptance and in faith. The gospel story is true, and because it's true, it yields a transformed life. I invite you this morning to come to the altar, accept this communion, and to be transformed by it. Let's go to God in prayer. God, you loved us enough to come to earth. You loved us enough to suffer and die for us. And you loved us enough to share your victory with us. You loved us enough to take our place. You dealt with sin once and for all. And so God, I pray that you will help us to lean into the transformed lives that you're calling us to. Help us to respond to this gospel this morning. Join with us. In your name I pray. Amen. So go now in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, receiving this true 